It's time for... We like bananas because they have no bones. We like comics because they have no bones. I'm Joe Getcho. And I'm Mike White. And welcome back, everybody. Welcome. If you haven't uh, checked out our previous episodes yet, go back and listen. We just did a Q&A from the listeners, which I think was particularly enjoyable one, as well as a review of Daredevil from 2003. So check that out. Again, the links are anchor.fm, Boneless Comics Podcast, at Boneless Comics Podcast on Instagram, and at Boneless Comics One on Twitter. So uh, without further ado, everybody, welcome back today. We are going to be talking about Hellboy Seed of Destruction, which was published by Dark Horse Comics in 1993. So we're going back about a decade before the uh, Guillermo del Toro movie that was produced. Yeah, and continuing our sort of path on looking at things from the early 2000s and 90s as well, because we (laughs) seem to have fallen into that, which is fine because I really enjoy a lot of stuff from that period, but it's just funny that those are our first choices and i don't know that that was necessarily the time period wasn't on purpose honestly my agenda has really been to just bounce around from company to company and get kind of a wide sampling of genres and material so uh we'll probably be returning to the big two before too long but uh we hadn't reviewed anything from dark horse and really hellboy is the biggest title that they have so yeah yeah uh anyway it's written by mike mignola Uh, It is also penciled by Mike Mignola and inked by Mike Mignola. Uh, I believe he does have a colorist uh, that works closely with him. And then John Byrne did the script for this one. So this is the only Hellboy title, this being kind of the first uh, miniseries, which was only four issues long, that has a co-writer. Everything else for close to a decade is done by just Mignola himself. But my understanding is there was a new creator-owned imprint called Legends that they were starting at Dark Horse Comics at the time. And uh, Mignola kind of got in on the ground floor of that because he knew John Byrne. And uh, Frank Miller was the other really well-known creator that was kind of involved in the formation of that. So. Yeah, there's a lot of creator-owned stuff that was going on at the time period that this came out. And I I think that they were using Dark Horse Comics for doing the business side of things so that way they could just focus on, you know, writing and producing their comic and allowing the company to take care of distributing and selling and all of that stuff so they could just focus on the art and the story. Yeah, and the, um, you know, Dark Horse had already kind of had an infrastructure before this. But they had kind of made a name for themselves in more of a horror-esque genre. A lot of their books were inspired by kind of EC comics of the 50s and, and monster movie adaptations and stuff like that. And, I mean, they had the rights to both Alien and Predator for quite a while. And they had done actually the first Alien versus Predator stuff that I was ever aware of was published by Dark Horse Comics. So that was kind of their wheelhouse. So Hellboy being more of a horror book, although definitely with a twist, uh, it kind of fits right into their wheelhouse. But before we really get into the story, I guess let's we can talk about Mike Mignola himself. Uh, he started off working at Marvel, uh, as a lot of these kind of indie creators did. Uh, he inked Daredevil, Power Man, and Iron Fist, and finally got some regular penciling duties on 
The Incredible Hulk and Alpha Flight. My guess is that where he met John Byrne was on Alpha Flight because that was kind of his baby uh, that he created. It was kind of a Canadian super team that was spun off from the X-Men. Also notably in Mignola's Marvel career, he did a Rocket Raccoon miniseries. So that which that character was not anything, you know, back then, not near the popularity he is now. So that's that's kind of notable. And uh, he also did a little bit of work at DC on some covers for Aquaman and the really famous A Death in the Family Batman arc is probably the the one of the highest profile things he did, as well as Gotham by Gaslight, which is kind of a one shot comic that is kind of a Victorian era steampunk take on Batman. So really, really kind of an Elseworlds out there idea. So, Joe, did you have anything else in your notes about um, Mike Mignola? I just had that he drew covers for several Batman stories, so he may have not have drawn or written for a lot of titles or just the gaslight, but he also drew covers mm-hmm. for a lot of different stories out there as well. Yeah. He, if, if you were anywhere in the nineties, I mean, I think there were some X-Force issues that have Mignola art on the cover. He, he was kind of odd in that he got in as an anchor, but then didn't really transition to a full-time penciler, which is normally the path that that would take. He was more of a, cover artist and it seemed like after a couple of years he was kind of not really wanting to do anything with the big two and kind of wanting to move out of that so yeah he seems like he likes to kind of stick to the things that i don't know that he's good at or that that he enjoys more so because a lot of the runs that he has drawn have had either animated or live action adaptations and some of it he hasn't really been asked to consult on and some of it he has and he's kind of just like like with rocket raccoon he's like it was just a job it's not something i created you know it's just something that i did and i did it differently but uh what's on the screen is even more different so it's not like it's really that big of a deal to him. So yeah, he seems to now he was present like every day on the Hellboy set, I think on at least the first movie and his involvement was really heavy with the recent reboot film with David Harbour as well. Yeah. So I think that character is, you know, kind of his baby and he really cares about it. But a lot of the other stuff, it's like, you know, this is a job I did. It's people can take and run and do whatever they want with it. So um, I did want to note about his art style because it's really it's really unique and it's really something that pushes this book into different territory tonally. He has a very stylized, almost minimalist art style. And it was Alan Moore, one of the you know most famous writers in comics of like Watchmen and Swamp Thing and V for Vendetta uh, that said it mixes German expressionism with Jack Kirby. And that's a pretty accurate as, as an art student, I could say that's a pretty accurate description of what he does. He's got the uh, really heavy shadow on all the characters, and that's what kind of shows the three-dimensionality of things is where the shadow is falling on it. There's no rendering as far as like lines to show details of 3D objects or anything like that. It's, it's really all done with the lighting and that kind of minimalist character design. So, you know, Hellboy is really just a big red guy with sawed off horns on his head and a big jacket. And I mean, it's it's really kind of a basic design, but that's 
kind of what Mignola excels at is that really kind of iconic, you know, character design. And then that really pulls you into the world with that kind of unique look. Yeah, I don't know if it's that it fits this so well, it fits Hellboy really well, or the storytelling, or just that they did such a good job with it that it seems like it goes together so well because they did well with it. But, it, you know, you have strong, flat colors against dark backgrounds, and you have the characters standing out, and it really helps you see what's going on and kind of, like, focuses your eyes at the 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 forefront of what's actually happening and the action and everything. Cause Hellboy, he's bright red, so he's not really missable. And then <laughs> you have all these backgrounds that are kind of pale and dark. And so he stands out even more in front of them. Um, not just the way he looks or his color, but you know, also the art style helps with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a, uh, I, I would almost venture to say that he has kind of a cinematic eye for framing shots and stuff like that. There is a, um, there's almost a comedic feel to some of how the action is shot and kind of like a slapsticky action sequence where, you know, Hellboy's just brawling with some monster or whatever. I, I think a lot of the, uh, the comedy in the movie came from the dialogue, but a lot of the kind of perceived motion and staging and some of the ridiculousness of some of the, uh, the visual imagery, like a, I don't know, like a Nazi scientist that has a, swastika on one eye of his glasses <laughs> um some of that stuff is just kind of it's pushed just far enough to be over the top and ridiculous and there is kind of an element of comedy to it but i i guess moving on we can talk about john Byrne real briefly he did contribute the script uh to this story and my guess is because uh, mignola was really inexperienced with writing a full script and dialogue maybe that's why burn was brought in but he also was involved because his character that he was writing in another title called next men uh the torch of liberty was included in hellboy's first issue and so there was some intentionality at dark horse to make kind of like a shared universe of heroes but they abandoned that very quickly where each of the creators kind of broke off and decided let's you know, do our own thing. And we can talk about John Byrne maybe in another episode where he's more prevalent on the staff, but he has a very long and illustrious career at both DC and Marvel. And he's created a lot of really famous characters like, I don't know, Shadowcat, Emma Frost, Sabretooth, the uh, Scott Lang version of Ant-Man came from John Byrne, Bishop, Omega Red, uh, Amanda Waller, Cassie Sandsmark, who is the second Wonder Girl, Ganthet uh, in the Green Lantern comics, Maggie Sawyer in Superman, and uh, the Superman villain Silver Banshee. So again, he's very, very influential on the industry. Yeah, a lot of well-known characters, not just in comics, but also on the big screen as well. Um, I did want to point out one more thing about John Byrne and not necessarily about him, but just kind of more about what he brings to uh, Seed of Destruction that isn't present later. And that's the sort of narrative style, I guess, because the internal thoughts of Hellboy, they, they appear in captions throughout the story, but it's not something that Mignola never really revisits necessarily uh, when he's mm -hmm. the sole art author and artist of the books that follow. And we can kind of get into how that affects the 
the the reading and the story and sort of the flow of these issues but it's just something that really stood out to me right away too that i kind of wanted to know like is this typical or is this something that's kind of a one-off where hellboy sort of announcing things that are happening and describing them as they happen as well kind of in his own narrative so i tended more towards liking it except that there are instances where I feel like his thoughts on something might be a little too deep for the character because, and this, this will be a decent lead into us talking about the characters, but some of the narrative bubbles, he goes into enough explanation that I think, is this the voice of the writer or is this the voice of Hellboy? And they're kind of indistinguishable a little bit, you know, is it, is it the, impartial narrator giving me information or is it actually hellboy and um honestly that's that's a fairly good segue into talking about the character in general but before we do that i wanted to throw out a question since this is kind of a central theme of hellboy and uh joe that is do you like the comic book trope of the reformed villain or evil character because hellboy is a character that is very much set up to be he should be evil, but he's not. I mean, I can't think of too many examples in comics of that specifically besides maybe like Goku in Dragon Ball Z. Um, he was intended to destroy Earth, but became its greatest defender. Uh, but there are a lot of cases in comics of this kind of trope of the reformed villain like Venom, Ares, uh, even Doctor Doom for a while. Poison Ivy has kind of moved out of villain territory. Clayface has moved out of villain territory. And really most of the Red Lantern Corps as well, especially later on in their run. So yeah, what, what do you think of that trope? Is that something you enjoy and like to see? Or So I'm going to answer your question indirectly because I, I like to be <laughs> difficult. Um, but I, okay. I think like there's a difference between a reformed villain or evil character and a character who was born with maybe a predisposition to be evil or you know like goku is a really good example of similarity to hellboy where they were both born into something but the way that they were raised the way that they learned values is quite different than it would have been if they had the upbringing of their like biological parents so they kind of grew up differently so they weren't reformed because they were never evil in the first place they were kind of born into an evil family and it's kind of like our um, mr miracle discussion that we had a couple episodes back where you have the evil the son of the evil character the son of the good character and they trade and so the good right. character is raised in the hellish environment and the evil character is raised in the the good environment and in that situation you know both of them ended up kind of being on the side of good and it's sort of the same with Hellboy and Goku that they were born into like evil circumstances, but their upbringing was really on the side of good. And I, I think that's very distinct and different from characters that they were evil, they were villainous, they were doing bad things at some point in their life, and then they've been reformed and now they're sort of on the side of good because you know you don't know if you can fully trust them or you look at them and you see mm -hmm. like okay i know you're doing good things now but all i see is is kind of the evil stuff that you did it's almost worse with a character like hellboy because you look at him and you're like 
oh yeah, he's like the son of the devil or something. He's a and, demon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to have anything to do with him. Whereas Hellboy, like he's not done anything evil. He doesn't. No. Really, that's not his personality. He hasn't like really flirted with it. He hasn't had, you know, issues where he's kind of gone back and forth or he did something that he had to like feel sorry for. I mean, he's pretty much an all around good guy in spite of the way he looks on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good description. So maybe, maybe my um, initial analysis was a little bit off. He would be closer at DC, maybe to somebody like Raven who, uh, you know, was raised by Trigon or, or, you know, raised to be this evil avatar but made the choice to not go down that road and ended up with the titans and became a hero maybe that's a little bit closer than some of the examples that i used yeah i think so and i i do enjoy to actually answer your question um (laughs) i do enjoy (laughs) both uh comic book tropes because it, it gives a new like another dimension to the characters and kind of gives them a really big story arc because not only are they starting somewhere and they have something to learn, but now it's like they have things that they have to unlearn and they have new things that they need to learn and they have to fight their kind of initial tendencies of, I get into a situation, well, normally I would steal this or I would attack somebody, but you know <laughs> what, I'm trying to do better. So I need to, you know, fight off those tendencies and, and try to do something else. So it kind of like sure. adds that dimension and, it also seems like a lot of the villainous characters are are designed like over the top and kind of more <laughs> cool than some of the heroes. So sometimes that's interesting too, like Atrocitus yeah. and you know the Red Lantern Corps. Like they're they're just a bunch of like weirdos and kind of grotesque looking. <laughs> and but to to be on their side and sort of see the the good things that they actually go after is is really interesting because again you look at them and you're like oh it's a bunch of evil characters but they're actually right not it's more of a yeah it's much more complicated than that so we've already talked about hellboy the character a little bit but to give everybody kind of a basic rundown uh he is a demon at least in the first trade it's not really clear if he's from like the biblical hell or just another dimension um the information that we're given in this trade leads me more to believe that he's just a creature from another dimension um although his looks kind of go a long way to being like well yeah he's probably a demon i mean he's he's red-skinned he's got horns uh he's got hooves for feet and he has a giant stone right hand uh, that they don't get too much into in this story. That's kind of saved for later trades. But uh, the rest of the cast, uh, rounding them out, we've got Abraham Sapien, uh, who was discovered on the day that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, I believe. So that's why they call him Abe Sapien. And uh, he's kind of an underwater creature with a little bit of psychic ability. Um, so kind of inspired by like Creature of the Black Lagoon, that that kind of vibe. Um, there's also Elizabeth Sherman, who is uh, she's a fire starter. So, again, within this comic, they don't get real detailed with kind of what and how her powers activate. But her entire body catches on fire and it's insanely powerful when it's unleashed. So those are those three characters are kind of the core group of the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense, or the BPRD, which is the 
uh, American government government organization created to police occult and paranormal threats throughout the world. So, and I just want to go on record and say that there is no such place. It does not yeah. exist. There is no such thing. So there you are. Besides just kind of having a basic understanding of, you know, who those three are, Professor Broom is another character that's really important. He's essentially Hellboy's father. He's the man that discovered him uh, in Nazi Germany. And uh, Broom is the director of the BPRD. Let's see, the main villain for this title is Grigory Rasputin, although he is not named in this story. That is who the character is. So the actual historical person of Rasputin is purported to be the the big villain of this tale. So it's definitely plays with some historical fiction, although I think the idea that Nazis were playing with occult stuff and trying to get into black magic as well as using science to achieve their Third Reich, that's pretty well documented as fact. So that's not really too far of an extrapolation to say that Hitler was interested in those kind of things. So are there any other characters we need to talk about? I mean, I guess there's Emma Cavendish and her three sons, um, but we don't need to, I I guess we don't need to necessarily explain them too deeply until we get into the story. They're not really remarkable other than like a plot device. Exactly. But there's also the frog spawn. Oh yeah, the frog spawn and the uh, the Ogdru Jihad, which I had to study up to see how to spell that. Yeah, there's a <laughs> there's a lot of frog monsters in this. I don't know that they're they're named beyond just being frog spawn, but they come from a uh, giant creature that's made of tentacles and eyeballs <laughs> called Saduhem. And uh, that's sort of the harbinger of the seven gods of chaos, which are basically the bringers of the apocalypse that they're trying to avoid in this story. Yeah, there's a lot of lore in this, and they sort of took lore that's sort of either common or that people knew about or that sort of thing. I mean, honestly, he just kind of made up some of it, but <laughs> but you kind of have to like, or I guess in the professional world, you'd call it taking creative liberties with history. Well, one, so, one thing that is really interesting is the, the absolute depth of the lore that is developed. I mean, there is a lot of time spent on explaining, you know, that the BPRD are kind of the allied counter agency to Hitler's occult research uh they're there to be the last line of defense against you know what the nazis are doing they they also you know kind of uh there's a lot of detail in things like rasputin has a gauntlet to open up the portal that's going to bring something through that supposedly is going to be some great warrior that's going to help hitler win the war it ends up being this child hellboy uh who's you know very young and just kind of sitting there looking like all right, you know, what What now? So, but there's there's a lot of detail, like the gauntlet that he has matches Hellboy's hand. So there's some similarities there. I, I think just a lot of the, um, the folklore about like the Cavendish family, they've been searching for nine generations for how to summon this uh, Saduhem creature, you know, 
and and all of them have been cursed uh, uh, to you know turn into creatures and die and and I don't know. It seems like even though he made a lot of it up, it's been very thought out as to how it's going to help the story along and and you know kind of how much of it he needs to explain what's happening. Yeah, it doesn't sound made up when you right. when you read it. You don't think like, oh, mm. this is a bunch of garbage. You just made this up, you know, for sure. Like it, there's enough folklore and enough history and enough kind of structure that it all makes sense within itself and you can follow it. But it's not detailed to the point where you're like, OK, I need rock salt for this specific kind of. Well, even then, I think they they did that kind of more in the, in the yeah. movie where you have certain elements that take care of certain creatures i I think you're going to see more of that if we were to read further on in the series but as this is kind of like minula's freshman effort some of the ideas are just a little bit undercooked and it's it's not that they're not there but they're things just aren't quite fully explained yet it's but but you're given enough of a teaser that it's like oh man i want to read on and you know kind of see where this goes because the story that's there is pretty interesting and pretty gripping. Yeah, I mean, the I, I guess we can get into the the actual story itself. The first issue, honestly, if you have seen the Hellboy movie from 2004, the first issue is essentially the opening scene of that movie. There is very little difference. I mean, we even have an American soldier saying I'd never heard the word paranormal until now. I think they turned that into a joke where he said para-abnormal in the movie, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, down to some of the dialogue, even it's a very similar take on Hellboy's origin. Well, and a lot of the costumes and props and the way characters look mimic this yeah. a lot as well. Yeah. I mean, you see, you see Cronin who's played up as a much bigger villain in the movie and uh, his look is very much, you know, the same. He looks like some kind of weird steampunk robot that's wearing a Nazi uniform. And uh, there's a maybe like one guy that we don't see in the movies, Von Krupp, who's the guy I mentioned earlier that has the, the glasses where one eye has a red swastika on it and the other one doesn't. Again, it's it's set in the quote-unquote real world in that we're looking at real historical time periods, but everything is punched up just a little bit to be more comic booky and more kind of pulpy. Oh, and, and I guess Agent of Liberty, we, we should talk about him a little bit because the reason uh, he was included in the story, and I think it was actually kind of a good choice because it, it lets you know what kind of story you're in for. You're looking at historical stuff, and then you see this superhero standing there with all the GIs. I think that's good in kind of preparing you for, okay, this is going to be kind of a horror tale, but it's also got kind of a superhero angle going on in it as well. And so Torch of Liberty is kind of a pastiche of Captain America. I mean, it's it's not really hidden at all the name kind of says it all and uh he is the one that gives hellboy his gun which is later revealed to be called the samaritan and he says that hellboy is the worst shot that he has ever trained (laughs) so there you go but uh it uses really big bullets as they say in the movie i'm not a very good shot but the samaritan here uses really big bullets yeah it's it's a comically large gun and i mean in the 90s this was like this kind of excess was like par for the course. I mean, having 
you you look at any cover of uh, like the X books at the time, you would see like Cable and Deadpool with these things strapped on their shoulders that were just ridiculously oversized. And and Hellboy's design and and his weapons are maybe even scaled down from that a little bit. So even though he's you know a six or seven foot demon wearing a trench coat, uh, you know, holding a giant gun. Um, somehow he looks re- less ridiculous than some of the superhero designs of that era. Uh, back to what you said about Torch of Liberty. And then earlier when you were talking about the creators, Burn Mignola, and there was another writer artist by the name of Art Adams. They planned for their creations to exist in a shared universe, but they decided this was going to be problematic. It was better that they each have their own universe. And that was kind of why originally uh, Torch of Liberty appeared, as well as, you know, Mignola wanted the, the World War II Captain America type character present. Um, so that's kind of like a, a part of what they had envisioned before they decided to abandon it. But if uh, Mignola did go on record saying that if he had thought of Lobster Johnson back then, he would have used him in the opening of Sea Destruction instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Lobster Johnson being his kind of uh, like pulp 1950s superhero character that goes out and fights crime. Uh, very similar to like the Shadow and um, the Grey Ghost. If you've seen the uh, Batman the Animated Series character, that that's kind of the vein that Lobster Johnson is in. That was a really good episode too. It was, it was a great <laughs> episode. Uh, so... Yeah, Hellboy's pulled through this portal, and there's a huge explosion. I, I think it's called the Ragnarok engine is what they use to open the portal to his realm. And uh, somehow or another, it's not really explained, but the, the Nazi scientist as well as Rasputin, who's he's Russian, so he's not from their country. His agenda isn't really to advance the Third Reich. He's really wanting to just kind of bring about the end of the world. But uh, they're all kind of separated from the group and the American and British soldiers pick up this child Hellboy and bring him back to the States. And so uh, uh, Professor Broom gives him his name kind of accidentally. They they called the mission Project Hellboy because they came back with this child and then that kind of just stuck. And so uh, we don't really see any of the intervening years because it skips ahead to the 90s, but Hellboy is now grown. Professor Broom has raised him, and he basically is hunting monsters for the BPRD. That's pretty much what his day job is. Yeah, I think this first story they say is like 50 years after they mm-hmm. discover him. So all the people who were, well, not all the people, I guess, Rasputin's still pretty much the same age, but Professor, <laughs> Professor Broom ages a lot. Hellboy doesn't really age. But yeah, it's, it's much later where this first story kind of picks up. Right. So uh, we we cut to a later scene where Hellboy's talking with Professor Broom. And sadly, I wish that there were more scenes like this, because if I really have one criticism of this comic, it's going to be the pacing. Things go really quick through everything. And Mignola made the choice or maybe Byrne did to focus on the lore and the world building. And I think that's super important but we miss some of the character connections that I know are going to be there later. And I think that would have grounded it emotionally a little bit better because we meet professor broom as an old man. He's saying he's come back from a mission 
And then he pretty much immediately is killed by this frog monster that comes into the room and puts all these bites all over his body. And that, that moves us into the first big action set piece where Hullboy's got to take down this thing. And um, I've got to say that between his narration and his dialogue, even though we don't get really as much explanation about him as what the movie lays out early on, you do get that sense of he's a blue collar guy. He's a working class guy. He's just doing a job. Defeating monsters is like punching a clock to him. You know, I mean, that's just kind of like, this is what I do. I get up in the morning, I go fight monsters and, you know, that's my life. And so uh, that attitude, I, I think, comes across, especially in his dialogue where he, you know, he'll uh, blow up the monster. And instead of having a witty quip, all he says is, well, that's all for you. And I think he uses that even a couple times in the comic and that you get the the impression that he's not, you know, the most clever guy on the street, but he can take a punch. He's super durable and super strong. And he has a really big gun. Well, and he's kind of just like, I don't care what your name is or what kind of weird, scary thing that you think you are. You know, I'm yeah. here to do a job and I'm going to take care of you. And that's just kind of, I'm going to keep coming back as long as I can. So do yep. what I got to do to take care of it. So it's funny in some regards, cause you know, he takes a hit and then he'll complain about it or he'll be like, "Ow, oh, that really hurt. Or, oh, my <laughs> arm's going numb. And then he'll kind of, okay, feelings coming back. All right. You know, getting my second win here, you know, here we go. And he'll get right back to it. Yeah, he's not phased by a whole, whole lot. So you do you do get the kind of the idea that he's been through the ringer like this multiple times at this point, and it's just kind of like, okay, we go again. take down another monster. Yeah, all right. So that, that aspect of his personality definitely shines through. And they, they amplified that greatly in the, the movie, just with Ron Perlman's performance and kind of his sarcasm and his like all right let's go hunt some monsters you know that kind of <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing so uh it is fun his first um his first big action set piece like i said is with this frog monster and uh he dispatches it fairly quickly but it does have some kind of numbing agent that it puts all the way up his what he calls his weak arm which is his left arm and his right arm is the one with the big stone hand on it. So that's what he ends up smashing it with and then shooting it with his gun. It's not a lot of spectacular over-the-top superpower stuff. It's really more about, you know, seeing two big monsters beat on each other. I mean, that's that's really just that kind of like 12-year-old enjoyment that you get out of watching something like that. You know, that's that's really the tone that they're going for, at least early on. Yeah. On his stone arm, I know he says like he's got one arm that's flesh and blood and it's, you know, it's regular. It's he's got feeling in it, everything. Mm -hmm. um, but the other one, the stone arm is super strong. It's pretty well, as far as he's concerned, indestructible and he doesn't feel pain. But I think he has some kind of feeling in it but they don't really go into any detail about why he has it or what it's for. It's not really a, a plot point of this story. Whereas in the movie, it was like a huge plot point. It was super important and it had a right. lot of lore behind it. So I don't know if they go into it, you know, in later books or not, but 
It's just an well, I can confirm because I've read up to the fourth volume of the trades. Right Hand of Doom, the fourth volume, is the one where they really get into all of that lore. So the movie really okay. is kind of a mashup of this story, Seed of Destruction, and Right Hand of Doom. They, re- they really just kind of add in all the lore from that other story and then pretty much run with the narrative of the one that we're reading. Gotcha. So when you read this first four issues, you kind of just go, okay, this is an interesting character. You know, I'll be interested to read more about him as time goes on. And then you get more Mm -hmm. as time goes on. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I do wish they hadn't killed Professor Broom so early. Yeah. So that's, that's a critique I have, mainly because that relationship is super important. And I'm fairly certain that they go back and establish more with flashbacks and later issues and there's also some other series that Mignola writes uh, much more recently Hellboy and the BPRD 1952 and 1953 that kind of go into the early years and so they show more of that you know dynamic between the two but I, I think that was maybe a mistake not including a little bit more of that to kind of anchor it emotionally because essentially his father has just died and Agent Manning calls and he's like well, I'm sorry for your loss. Okay, here's the info on the next mission. And they're just kind of off to the next thing. Yeah, he doesn't know. really seem phased at all. And that was kind no. of, uh, it confused me because I really haven't read hardly any Hellboy comics, I think at mm-hmm. all. And But I've seen the movies. So, you know, I, I saw this Brutenholm and I missed the thing about Professor Broom um, <laughs> being how you pronounce it. But I was like, is this supposed to be the same guy? I mean, he doesn't really seem to be that phase. There's no funeral. Yeah. He's not saddened by it. So I, I assumed it was a completely different character. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's the same guy, but I, a lot of this is really Mike Mignola just kind of discovering what he can do with all these toys that he's put on the table. And I think especially this first volume most of the ideas were there, but they hadn't fully been fleshed out all the way. Like we just get one page description on who Abe Sapien is. We get one page description on who Liz Sherman is. And uh, like Abe Sapien will go on to have his own series that was pretty long running and, you know, get tons of lore surrounding him. I haven't read any of it, but I, I do know that that he's much more developed later. So I, I really think this was just him kind of playing with the medium and going, I like horror. I like doing these kind of historical, you know, things. And I like superhero books and I'm just going to kind of smash them together and see what I can get out of it. Yeah. I think that's a difference between reading a character that was created in the nineties versus a character that was created in the sixties or fifties or forties mm-hmm. is that, you know, by, by the time you get to the 90s and they start sort of doing a either a soft reboot or just a retelling, you've got so many years of lore to draw from that you know who the character is and all these things about them. So when you write another origin story, it's pretty comprehensive. Whereas when it's a character's first appearance, you're really not going to get a whole lot of that stuff because they just haven't thought of it yet. So from my perspective, and I can save some of this for the review section, but you know, having seen the movies and knowing what I know about Hellboy just from that aspect, mm-hmm. reading the comic, I found it kind of lacking as an origin story because it didn't go into those details. But kind of like you described, it's not that it's lacking. It's just at this point in time, it hadn't been developed yet. And it is later um, and even yeah. more so than the movies are that you know really go into in depth about the character and only the way that the comics can. But it's just kind of 
interesting to look at it, I guess, backwards. <laughs> yeah, where you've seen the non-comic first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, to pretty quickly narrate how the rest of the story goes down, the pacing is really quick. But Hellboy ends up at the manor of Emma Cavendish. And like we mentioned them before, this family's been cursed for nine generations. They're trying to raise this giant tentacle monster that lives underneath the mansion. Sure, why not? As one does. And Rasputin has figured out a way to actually bring it back to life. So he's very steeped in black magic and darkness and kind of demonic lore. And I mean, even the, the historical person was basically recorded as being one of the most evil men who ever lived. So I think that's probably why Mignola picked him specifically to be this character. All three of the uh, Cavendish boys turn into frog monsters. So that's that's more uh, fighting for Hellboy to deal with. Abraham Sapien gets captured on this mission, and we don't see him for a good while. And Liz Sherman is actually captured by Rasputin himself. And so it seems like the original plan was for Rasputin to use Hellboy as sort of the conduit to open the portal and let the seven gods of chaos out. But once he gets Liz Sherman, he's like, well, you know, her fire starter ability will produce even more power than you ever could. So I'm going to use her. So that's, he kind of adjusts his plan on the fly a little bit and tells Hellboy that he's worthless. Hellboy does feel a connection to him. And again, that's stuff that's going to be explained in a later volume, but that's that's pretty much a, a quick rundown of the next chapter of the story. Uh, it ends with some possession where uh, Abe is actually possessed by Elihu Cavendish, who's kind of the first man in the line of the cursed family lineage, to throwing a harpoon through Rasputin's chest. Uh, and at this point, Rasputin has really kind of got Hellboy on the ropes, and Hellboy's probably not going to survive. So that saves him from all three frog monsters and also the uh, Saduhem, Saduham, I can't remember the name of it, the big tentacle monster thing that's coming after him. I, I did want to um, bring out a really interesting detail from this moment in the story, though, because there is a cutaway after, you know, while, while Rasputin's trying to summon this monster, there's a cutaway to an alien space station populated with aliens that are like, somebody's breaking the seal on the Ogdru Jihad. Who could be stupid enough to do that? And they're like, oh, it's Earth, those idiots. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, it's very funny, but it's also really interesting because it brings in that kind of sci-fi element as well as the fantasy horror element and kind of mixes it all together. And it's a very comedic beat that you would not expect to see in a story like this, especially one that's so focused on kind of the horror and monster aspects of things. Yeah, they're they're kind of, I guess, sort of like observers, like they have nothing to do with anything that's going on in the story no. or the lore or or anything that's being summoned. But they're just kind of like, hey, look what Earth's doing. What a bunch of weirdos. And that's kind of it, it's almost <laughs> like a, a fourth wall kind of thing within the story because again aliens aren't really a part of the hellboy stories it's all about the like either magic or the nazis or ancient 
stories and things that are coming to life nowadays. And I, I don't think that aliens are really ever part of it. So to see them kind of in the, these, like, I mean, what is it like one or two panels? It was just, yeah, kind of, it was out there, but it wasn't out of there. Like this doesn't fit. This is dumb. It was like, ha, that's funny. And then, you know, kind of back to the battle. And- yeah, it was, it, it was kind of a, a funny little aside. I mean, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I thought it was great, but to make a long story short, Rasputin's plan kind of backfires on him because after Abe throws the harpoon through his chest, Liz activates her fire powers and what he thinks is going to be super awesome and summon the Ogdru Jihad ends up actually burning down the uh, entire monster that he summoned underneath this mansion, setting Rasputin himself on fire so that Hellboy can shoot him in the head and uh, pretty much destroying the whole mansion. As I recall, I think it all collapses in. So he severely underestimated Liz Sherman's powers. Uh, One thing I really do like about this is that while you don't get the sense that they planned it necessarily, everybody that came on the BPRD team had a part to play in the climax in taking down Rasputin. So even though Abe was kind of possessed into throwing this harpoon and he didn't really know what he was doing, he was there for that. Liz you know, really got the ball rolling with burning down all the, you know, evil creatures in the building. And, and then Hellboy, of course, gives the final pop. Yeah. The ending kind of goes by very quickly, kind of Mm -hmm. like a lot of other things uh, in the story, but especially with the whole like possession thing. And it it just, that really seemed like it to me, like it came out of nowhere, but Mm -hmm. it was super crucial because it was enough of a distraction for Rasputin that it kind of got his attention off of Liz so that, you know, she could set him on fire and, you know, everything else that happened there. But it was just kind of like Abe had this whole side story of like where he was exploring and Hellboy was wondering, like, is he in trouble? Is he okay? And so you sort of see this like back and forth of what's going on. And what he discovers is this Elihu, whatever his name is, kind of just sitting there. And he's like, at first I thought he was like a statue or something. And then, you know, all of a sudden I started like grabbing this harpoon and doing this stuff. And it was just kind of like, I don't know, it seemed a little too weird, even for Hellboy. I, I think that's a little bit of foreshadowing for us seeing kind of Abe's telepathic abilities later. True. Um, but I, I may be wrong about that. But him being able to make contact with something like that falls in line with where his character would end up uh certainly what i know of him so but again that's not really explained in this story so it's it's a lot of these it's like the ideas for these characters were there but they haven't been fully fleshed out in this story the story is really focused on getting through that narrative of you know hellboy getting to rasputin and taking him out so they can prevent the end of the world they they do do some good foreshadowing with uh, the final scene with Hellboy where Rasputin says, if you kill me, you will never know who you are. You will never understand the power inside you. And Hellboy doesn't hesitate at all. He says, yeah, you're right, but I can live with it. And then he shoots him (laughs) in the head. So it's, (laughs) it's kind of like you were saying earlier where he doesn't really have any hesitation about doing the right thing. It's not, he was never tempted to go to the evil side and join Rasputin and, learn about his origins uh you know that just didn't even cross his mind right but he's aware 
of it enough that if somebody comes up and says, Hey, I'll tell you about your origin and all this stuff. He's like, I'm, I'm not that person. Like that doesn't right. define me. So I'm mm-hmm. not really interested. Don't care. Yeah. I think that's a really good, a really good thing about the character too, is that, you know, that's in a way it's something that haunts him. Like, Oh, there's this unknown aspect of myself. And, you know, the later volumes will get into what his real name is and, and, you know, things like that. But but none of those things ever really inform who Hellboy is. Essentially, he's the guy that's going out there trying to protect people from giant monsters, and he's happy to do it, and um, usually with some sardonic wit. Yeah, he's definitely a good example of, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Like, you mm-hmm. see him, and you hear about his origin and all these things, and you and you hear his name, like his name is Hellboy, so you think that he's this, like... <laughs> you know, evil demon character, but he's really quite a softy inside. And in the movie, he likes cats. <laughs> I, I know that the candy bar thing from the movie is in the comic books, I, because at least in Hellboy in the BPRD 1952, he's got baby Ruth's with him Nice on several of the missions. So I, I do know that that's whether that's the movies influencing the comics or if that's something Mignola figured out later, I don't know. Uh, but a, a lot of those elements will kind of trickle into the book as it goes on. So, yeah. Oh, there there are two little short stories at the end of this volume. Both of them are actually really fun. Uh, one is where Hellboy is fighting the ancient Egyptian god Anubis, who turns a dog into a giant dog monster. <laughs> it's about a uh, two-page story. And uh, it ends on a very comedic note that I won't spoil if if uh, anybody in the listeners here wants to go read it. But uh, then there's also a short story that explains what happened to von Krupp, the uh, Nazi scientist from the beginning of the story. And he is now just a head in a jar that seems to be, uh, but he still has his glasses on, um, that seems to be uh, leading some kind of black magic or dark science experiments in a lab where he has a talking gorilla and uh there was a really funny quote in the volume where Mignola said i learned two things from this story hellboy looks better with a trench coat on and i love drawing giant gorillas with bolts coming out of them (laughs) it's good to know what you like yeah absolutely so yeah i mean that's pretty much the synopsis of the story it's it's very pulpy it's very like film noir it, it kind of has the vibe of old universal monster movies from like the black and white days, but just kind of updated to the 90s. The, the dialogue is not really period appropriate. They say things like, that's pretty Looney Tunes in the, in the intro in the 1940s. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of these elements that really should not make sense together, but somehow Mike Mignola manages to pull it all together and make it feel like a cohesive world it's just not quite in the final form that it will end up being later on yet yeah you would expect it to be in the horror genre because there's all this mythological lore and science magic monsters that sort of thing but the tone of it i think and the characters keep it from being like truly horror because when you Mm -hmm. read it it's more not necessarily uplifting and upbeat, but at least <laughs> Hellboy's kind of positive disposition. I guess I use the term positive loosely because he can be um, <laughs> not very negative, but just kind of more like, 
well, here we go. You know, I'm being tossed at a wall or that sort of thing. But yeah, um, it really keeps it from feeling like you're reading a horror novel, like, oh, there's something around the corner or something bad's about to happen. Like you, you really kind of get behind Hellboy, like, okay, he's going to put a stop to it. You know, whatever it is, he's going to hit it with his stone hand and (laughs) see what kind of damage he can do. Yeah. And he doesn't really know how to fight you don't get the impression he's just really strong he can punch and really durable he can punch yeah he can pull the trigger he can shoot the gun not necessarily aim it very well (laughs) exactly well that's why it's important that it be so comically oversized so i have been having a really hard time rating this based on a number of factors i'm i'm gonna say before i give my rating that i really enjoyed this Um, My enjoyment of it was only enhanced by having seen the movie and read some of the later stuff and knowing where the story ends up. So maybe this is one that actually reads better on a second read when you kind of know a lot of what's being alluded to. But I think I I give points for the attempt and the, the ambition put into making something so different and so crazy and actually being able to pull it off. So I'm actually going to give it a four out of five, I think. I'm really deducting that point for just the kind of unfinished ideas, things like having some kind of emotional core for the character, like his relationship with his father, or you know, showing more camaraderie between the teammates. Those all would have been good things to show. But it's honestly so detailed, and it moves so quickly, and it's so fun that some of those undercooked ideas don't really bother me too much. So four bananas out of five for me. (laughs) Yeah. I, I would have to agree for the most part, like reading this now, looking at it, I see so many things that are missing. And if I was to just kind of gloss over it, I might be like, ah, you know, I'll give this like a, like a three out of five. Cause you know, they kind of, they, they got the most of the Hellboy stuff. It's got the, the spirit of it. You know, it's, it's very interesting, but it just doesn't flesh things out as much as it should, but mm-hmm. I'm going to elevate it. Uh, to a four out of five, just because you have to respect the source material. Like this is where Hellboy came from. This is really what started everything. And yeah, you just have to respect the source material. Like it's not bad at all. It doesn't have a lot of things in it that I wish it did, but that's because, you know, they hadn't been thought of yet. So I'm not really going to dock at points for, for that as like a, you know, first sort of creative work. I think it's pretty good as far as how consistent and cohesive everything feels so looking at it from that perspective you know i i would elevate my score more but if i wanted to just kind of be a snob and be like well i like the movies and this comic eh, i was kind of missing some stuff i'd rather just go watch the movie i'll give it a a three out of five you know i i don't want to do that yeah i i think it's it's hard really for both of us, because um, I know that the angle both of us took was having seen the movie first and then going, oh, this is a comic book and and going out there and discovering what that was all about. Um, and so I, I have a, so much love for the movie version of the character, but I do just kind of respect the ambitiousness of this as a first effort in the comic book genre. And honestly, if I was doing my first creator-owned project and I came up with something that became this successful, I would be giddy beyond belief. Yeah. So rate it whatever you want. I don't care. Like this sparked, you know, so much in the later years that, you know, in three feature films and all these comics and everything and and popularity, like a character that really, 
you know, if situations had been different, may not really have gained popularity because, you know, what, what really made Hellboy famous, like before the movies came out and everything, like what really set him apart and different, you know, there's so many other characters, I think out there that go undiscovered and Hellboy certainly could have been one of those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think it speaks to the strength of the source material that there were filmmakers out there like Guillermo del Toro that intentionally sought out Mignola and they're like, look, this is the thing I've been wanting to make movies about. You know, can we can we get this rolling? I mean, because that's my understanding of how the movie came about is that we just we've got this guy that's a film director and he's so impressed with the work and he'd been reading it, you know, as it was coming out a decade earlier. And he was like, that's that's the kind of stuff that I want to make. Yeah, I, I think that that speaks to the um, kind of the longevity of the, the concept is this blue collar guy fighting monsters. So, all right. Well, I guess we give it, uh, we both give it a four out of five. I guess if you just look at it as a work in and of itself, you know, there's a couple of critiques you could make as far as the sure. pacing and, and sort of who the, some of the characters are, but also the narration. I wanted to touch on that again, that the narration is kind of like, I, I see it both ways. Like one, it gets kind of almost annoying because it's constantly there. And in the comic book, you have all these visuals that you don't really need to narrate things like, oh, Hellboy mm -hmm. gets punched and now he's bouncing off the vaulted ceiling like a sack of wet cement. Like he actually calls <laughs> that out in the panel where he is bouncing off a vaulted ceiling like a stack of wet cement. So it, <laughs> it's kind of both like, why do you need to call this out? It's comic, bro. I can you know, yeah. see clearly what's happening, but it's also, true to Hellboy's personality of, you know, that's how he talks. That's how he thinks. And he's like, ah, oh, great. Here I am bouncing off the ceiling. Like, yeah, okay, here we go. Or in one of the, the later stories that's in the trade as well is uh, he's like, Oh, too many idioms. If you ask me only there's nobody here to ask me, he's like talking to himself. And so it's like this inner dialogue that I don't think you get in a whole lot of comics. Cause again, it's, there's a lot of visual going on, but he's talking about the visual and sort of describing it. And it's kind mm -hmm. of a, an interesting character trait on how he's got like a sort of snarky commentary on things, but it's never like goofy or he's just being silly or, you know, trying to get a cheap laugh. He's just kind of like sarcastic, smart alecky, funny mm -hmm. which is definitely different than like a, a spider-man or a deadpool that kind of character yeah i was actually going to mention spider-man after you said about the internal dialogue because he's the character that is known for doing that the most thought bubbles are now kind of passe in comic books we don't really see them this was right in the period where they were kind of starting to go out of style in favor of these just narration boxes um, and you're supposed to just know like, well, this is the speaker is the character that you see. So that that was kind of interesting just from a historical perspective that I was like, oh, they're doing this technique, which is something that is now considered very modern. That's what everybody does. They don't really do the the thought bubble balloon thing anymore. But I thought it was really good because it really demonstrated his character and you know, helped you learn a lot about him, even if they didn't have those like real deep character moments yet. Yeah. Um, I'm a little mixed on it because I feel like it added a lot and it was really good to be able to see kind of through his worldview and his point of view during the story. And that's something that you just can't get in a movie, but there were instances like the one you described where it was just unnecessary description a little described uh, because it, it's it's almost overwritten a little bit and i think 
once burn leaves, that would definitely be something that goes away um, because Mignola is very much a master of the visual storytelling. The pictures give you what you need to understand what's going on. So it really doesn't need to be explained to you. There are some artists in the industry that, uh, for lack of a more delicate way to put it, don't know how to frame an action sequence so that you can follow what's going on. Um, but Mignola is not one of those people. So uh, yeah, you. there are cases where it feels superfluous. So it feels like I'm I'm like talking myself out of the four down to the three, but I'm really not. I uh, I, I really want to want to stay on that four just because I think the the ambition behind it and the execution of what's there is really good. It's just that there's more to come, and we haven't hit that all time Hellboy story yet. I would be in agreement, but we won't always agree. But this time we do. <laughs> yeah, we. I guess our biggest disparity has probably been on Mr. Miracle. Otherwise, we've been on the same page. We've got to really find something that one of us hates and the other loves uh, so we can, you know, argue for an hour. That'll be really entertaining for the listeners. And people love controversy. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> well, until then, we'll have to uh, stick with what we have next time, which is returning to DC with their Vertigo imprint title, Fables, Volume 1, Legends in Exile. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we like comics because they have no bones. We do. And I'm Joe Gatcho. And I'm Mike White. And we'll see you next time. Peace out. Peace out.